Stay hungry, stay foolish. In a world where we are inundated with technology, data, and distractions, it is becoming increasingly difficult to focus and maintain our attention. Today's guest will give us some background on the issues we are experiencing in a tech-heavy world. We're going to talk about neuroscience and what's going on in our brains while they are on technology. We're going to talk about focus and attention. Most importantly, he will share some of the tactics and exercises we can use to focus less on our hardware and more on our humanware. He is the best-selling author of multiple books, including as far back to 1997, a book called Technostress, one we will talk about today, which is Eye Disorder, which touches on disorders we are experiencing amplified by technology. Welcome, Dr. Larry D. Rosen. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's great to have you on the show, Larry. And as we're talking about off air, the amount of books you've written, and you're always so far ahead and predicting what you did has come through. And maybe it'd be worth starting and mentioning Techno Stress, which you wrote in 1997. I know it seems amazing that it was that long ago, but we talked a lot in Techno Stress about what was coming. And I think we weren't even close. Um, a lot of it came true in spades, completely overwhelmed by technology in a very short period of time. That was only 20, 21 years ago. That's staggering to me. Eye Disorder came out in 2012, which was five years after the iPhone. It described a dystopian future where everybody would be on their iPhones in restaurants, in cinemas, etc. And all of that had come true. But it'd be great, Larry, to talk about one of the focuses of your work at the moment, which is why we are all so distracted. Right. And my concern right now is more of a, of a micro concern rather than a, a larger macro concern. I'm real interested in what is it about technology, and really the question is what is it about our brains that makes us feel as though we have to be constantly connected 24-7, um, such that we will take any opportunity to check in even when it's inappropriate. One of the things that I think is fascinating that I've noticed um, here in California is when someone pulls up to a stoplight or a stop sign, the first thing they do is grab their phone out. Even if it's just five seconds at the stoplight or at the stop sign, they feel as though they've got a moment and they can't waste that moment because they've got to catch up on something they might have missed out on in the last two minutes since the last stoplight or stop sign. And the fines here are pretty heavy for texting or using your phone when you drive. And I would suggest that probably at least a quarter to half of the people I see in cars are using a phone. It's of epidemic proportions. It's even when you see somebody in a coffee queue and it's like this, it, it's like a way to get over the uncomfortable element of being just in the moment. Well, and that's, that's part of the issue. And that's part of what we grapple with when we're studying this is what's driving this behavior. And I would think that from everything that I've seen so far and all the research that we've done and other people have done, that the driving force in this behavior is this strange kind of anxiety that we all seem to have. And that is sometimes called nomophobia, sometimes called FOMO, fear of missing out. Nomophobia is not being able to have your mobile phone access. Um, it, it's something about a need to stay connected. And part of what we have seen 
is our ways of staying connected have just exploded in the last few years. I mean, if you just think five, six, seven years ago, we had email, we had phone calls, we had text messages, but but in the States, text messages cost money. And so people didn't send them, you know, willy-nilly back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, and you started to get social media. And now all of a sudden, um, we find in our research that the average young adult that we study has an active, very active account on six social media sites at a time. And so it's not surprising that there's this background need, this nagging anxiety, needing to constantly check in on all six of those. And that takes time and effort. And And if you're in sitting there at a restaurant with somebody else and you check in, it kind of keeps you glued to your phone. What I love about your work, Larry, is this isn't anecdotal. Eye Disorder, for me, was one of the most well-researched books I've read. And I had I was telling you, my biggest challenge was the multitude of notes I had, had gathered because I was like, there's so much in this. You had so many studies cited, etc. It'd be great to share some of the latest research that you've, you've done with our audience on attention spans in college students, for example. Well, the bottom line, by the way, I'm a scientist. And I don't believe anything unless it's proven to me. And I believe in the scientific method. Um, science is really important. And so with that in mind, we've been trying to get at what is driving this kind of behavior. And um, uh, let me describe, since, since you like my studies, let me describe to you a couple of studies that we've done that are trying to, to get at the edges of, around the edges and eat away at what's, what's driving our behavior. So in one study, one of my colleagues, Dr. Nancy Cheever, um, brought a bunch of people into a huge room. I think it ended up being about 160 plus college students. Someone in one door where they were told, take your phone and your books and put them underneath your desk, turn your phone off and just sit there and do nothing. And in fact, they were told, if you talk to anybody else, if you do anything else, you're kicked out of the study and they were in there for extra credit. So of course they wanted their extra credit. The other half of the people came in another door and they were told exactly the same thing except for their phone. They were given a claim check to take their phone away from them to be retrieved later. Then 10 minutes in, she gave everybody a very easy paper and pencil measure of anxiety. And then 20 more minutes in, so about 30 minutes in, and then about 60 minutes in, she gave three different administrations of the same exact measure of anxiety. So what were these people doing during the hour they were there? Nothing. They were simply told to sit and do nothing. So this is inducing an incredible state of boredom which we as, as uh, people in, the, in 2018 don't seem to be able to tolerate at all. So what happened to these people? Turns out it didn't matter whether your phone was underneath the desk or we took it away from you. Um, we found the same results. 10 minutes in, 30 minutes in, 60 minutes in, those people who we would classify as light smartphone users, meaning they could leave their phone in the other room and not freak out. Um, they could actually even leave their phone at home and not get anxious about it. They showed no change in anxiety across the 60 minutes. They did not worry about not having their phone. They didn't feel anxious. The moderate users, in between the light users and the very heavy users, the moderate users, 10 minutes in, weren't feeling any anxiety. But then 30 minutes in, they started to become anxious, but that leveled off at a moderate amount of anxiety. It was the heaviest users that were the startling result. 
10 minutes in, they were already more anxious. 30 minutes in, they were way more anxious. And 60 minutes in, they were horrendously anxious. These are our college students, our young adults, our teenagers, even many of our children who are getting anxious when they're not allowed to access their phone. And what we see from our research is we can watch and see how many times a day they access their phone. And we've done this a couple of times now. Um, in early 2016, I had my students put an app on their phone, and the app monitored how many times a day they unlocked their phone and how many minutes it stayed unlocked. And in early 2016, large group of people unlocked their phone um, 56 times a day, which is about every 15 minutes of waking time. And it stayed unlocked for about 220 minutes. That's almost four hours. They unlock their phone, spend about four minutes looking at something. And I'll tell you in a second what they're looking at. And then they lock their phone for about another 10, 11 minutes. And then they unlock it all day long, all day long. A year later, we did the same thing with a similar group of people. They unlocked their phone only 50 times a day, which we thought was good until we noticed that the total number of minutes was 262 minutes. That's four, almost four and a half hours. It's about five and a quarter minutes per unlock. So they unlock their phone for about five minutes, then they lock it back up for about 10, and they keep repeating this all day and all night. So what are they doing? They're mostly checking something having to do with communication and particularly social media. These are young adults who have active accounts on six social media sites right now. And that's a heavy responsibility if you've got to keep checking in and making sure that you're not missing out on something that could be important to you, or at least conceivably seem important to you. When you look at some of the work by the likes of David Rock, for example, he'll talk about you can only hold a certain amount of information in your brain at the same time. So maybe four data points, maybe five or six. That coupled with the fact that we're working in a knowledge economy now, the world is run more by people's brains than it is by hard labor, by manufacturing, et cetera, in this day and age. This is where this becomes really worrying because these are the leaders of the future and they are struggling to keep their attention for more than 10 minutes. Isn't that startling and a little bit scary? By the way, right now I have high school students. So these are 15, 16-year-olds with the same app on their phone for probably a period of about six to eight weeks um, for the rest of their semester. And we'll see what they look like. But my suspicion is, is that they're going to they're unlock their phone even more often for more minutes. My guess is they'll be on their phones upwards of, of five, six, seven hours a day. When we're constantly on all the time, so our brains are almost in this semi-active state all day, because most of us use our phones for alarm clocks as well. And you've noticed with your research that the younger generation are actually checking their phone during the night. I mean, I put mine on airplane mode. Yes, I use it as an alarm clock but I don't have any notifications come in. But they will check the notifications, they will answer the phone, and then sleep deprivation kicks in. And that's another factor that affects our attention. Right, and sleep deprivation has concerned me enormously. The typical teenager is supposed to get about nine hours of sleep a night. They average during the, the week, the school week, about six hours, and during the weekend, about 10. But they still run at a sleep debt of about 12 to 15 hours a week. Um, and that's a sleep debt is the kind of debt that you have to repay. It's not, cannot be forgiven. You can't just say, ah, it's okay. Forget that sleep debt. You got to repay it. And most kids repay it by taking naps. 
And naps really don't do the same work that a good night's sleep does. I spent um, probably about a year studying sleep and, and reading up on it. And one of the things that fascinated me is what actually goes on in your brain, in your body when you're asleep. Um, I always thought your brain and body were kind of quiescent and inactive during the night. In fact, your brain is about 95% as active during the night as it is during the day, which is startling. And the part that's less active is the part that's right in the front, your prefrontal cortex, which is your executive controller. So it's sort of like your brain's going without control. It's going whichever way it feels like going. Three things happen in the middle of the night if you, if you get a good night's sleep. And I'll preface it by saying, if you get a good night's sleep. Um, first thing is called consolidation, which is anything you learn during the day, your brain practices. And literally, it practices remembering things that you learn during the day, things that you saw that you need to remember. Anything that you, your brain thinks is important, it practices it. The second thing is pruning, meaning it gets rid of things that it doesn't think you'll need that it thinks are worthless, like the fact that I'm wearing a red t-shirt right now. My brain doesn't need to know that, and tomorrow I'll probably forget that I was wearing a red t-shirt. It's the third thing that our brain does at night that's, that worries me. During all this process of consolidation and pruning, your brain uses chemicals that are inside of it, but it doesn't use them completely, and it gets rid of or leaves around um, chemicals that are toxic. Many of these are something that we know very well. They're called beta amyloids. And beta amyloids, when there are lots of them, they clump together and form something called plaques. What your body and your brain is supposed to do in a good night's sleep is to open up your spinal column just a tad, send a little bit of extra spinal fluid up through your brain and flush out all these toxic molecules that are hanging around and get rid of them and flush them out of your body. If you don't get a good night's sleep, that process does not happen completely. And so these beta amyloids are left in your brain forming plaques. The interesting thing is when they look at the brains of, of deceased Alzheimer's patients, they have a ton of beta amyloids and plaques in their brains. So I'm, I worry a lot about people not getting a good night's sleep and harming their ability to learn and to retain information. And maybe in the long run, um, leading to some serious memory kinds of psychiatric problems. And we're already seeing that, Larry, aren't we? I mean, I don't know whether I'm just more aware of it now, but we're definitely seeing more cognitive degenerative diseases happening in the world, or it feels like there is. Yeah, I think there's some research that shows that there is, and um, we're seeing more of that. But I think the real, the real problem is going to come in about 30 years when these teenagers and young adults are in their in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s, and the the, the sort of decades long non sleeping, non cleaning out your brain is going to catch up with them. And Larry, so we uh, we have a lot of parents, for example, who would listen on the show because we deal often with issues like this and how we can prevent rather than cure. What what does a good night's sleep look like for a for us as 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 adults, as workers, as leaders, as business people? but also as parents to get our children into the good habit of a good night's sleep. So I'm going to start your good night's sleep an hour before bedtime. Um, the National Sleep Foundation says that an hour before bedtime, you should remove your phone and your tablet from your bedroom and put them someplace else, preferably under lock and key, so that you can't get up in the middle of the night and check them. And the reason for that, several things happen biochemically in your brain. Uh, several hours before you're getting ready to go to bed, 
one of your glands, your pineal gland, starts secreting melatonin. Little bits at first, then more and more melatonin. And melatonin is what's the, is the the chemical that puts you to sleep. The problem is is that all of our devices, our tablets, our phones, even our television sets, are made of light emitting diodes, LEDs, and those light emitting diodes put out light primarily in the blue light range. Well, blue light what has a specific function. And that function is to, to wake you up. And it wakes you up by, by charging the adrenal gland with secreting cortisol. And so, and also when, it, when the adrenal gland secretes cortisol, it also shuts off the pineal gland and stops or slows the production of melatonin. So if you play with your device in the last hour before you go to sleep close to your face, you're getting bombarded by blue light which is waking you up and not putting you to sleep. Now, you may be super tired and you may fall asleep, but it's pretty destined to give you a bad night's sleep. So the first recommendation by everybody is to put your phone away, your devices away an hour before you go to sleep. If you can't do that, the Mayo Clinic says, all right, so dim, dim the brightness on them and hold them about 14 inches away from your face and you won't be getting much of the blue light. Or you can use on the iPhone, they have something called Night Shift which slowly shifts the light from blue light to pink light, stimulates the melatonin and doesn't stimulate the cortisol. Um, the other thing that I recommend for, for parents to be aware of is that for themselves and for their kids is in the last hour before sleep, have your child or you do something that is pretty guaranteed to calm your brain down. Um, I always offer two or three options. Um, one, interestingly enough, is to watch television but off of a real television set that is far enough away from your face that you're not getting much blue light. The blue light dissipates pretty quickly. So a typical television set is about eight to 10 feet away. And so watch television and wa but watch a show that's predictable, something that you've watched before, you know the characters, your brain doesn't have to work as hard to, um, to learn the characters. That's one option. Um, another option is to actually read a paper book. Um, the light reflected off paper is more in the pink range which helps the melatonin, um, but only read a book that you are familiar with. Um, I read mysteries all by the same author, so I don't have to make my brain very hard to learn about the uh, new characters in there. So that's a second option. A third one is, interestingly enough, is to listen to music. But I always tell kids that the kind of music they want to listen to is a playlist that they know so well that they can sing the song in their sleep. And so stick that on. The problem, of course, is your playlist is on your phone, and that becomes another issue that you're there. But um, I work with kids to get around that. And then I've, I think there is a fourth way to do it, but it involves your phone, which makes me a little, a little leery. And that is there are a bunch of apps to help you go to sleep. Um, there's apps that help you meditate at night. There's apps that help you that play white noise that help you go to sleep. Those are options, but those to me are poor third or fourth options. Um, but the goal is to get a good night's sleep without technology. Three quarters of the kids that we study, kids and young adults, sleep with their phone within arm's reach on, either the sound on or on vibrate, not on do not disturb, not in airplane mode. And half of those get up at least once or more times during the night to check something other than the time. And as soon as that happens, then their brain gets into overload, cortisol is, is leaked, and they start thinking, and then they have trouble going back to sleep. Yeah, it's, it's like this vicious cycle, isn't it? And, you know, w one thing that 
just to bring to your attention is a lot of people would see a glass of wine as a kind of a relaxant at night. And, you know, I, I often think it's because the more glasses of wine, the, the more you don't like your job when you're trying to mask something. But for those who maybe just be into the wine, that's not the case. But that doesn't necessarily release stuff like melatonin. No, actually, actually interestingly enough, I mean, it's, I, I, I've known people in my life who um, their goal to put themselves to sleep is to drink a big, huge glass of wine. And alcohol turns into sugar in the middle of the night and wakes you up. So it serves the opposite of what you want. It will put you to sleep in a, in a semi-stuporous, drunken state, but it doesn't last very long. And it's not a good sleep. It's not the kind of sleep that's going to put you through the typical four sleep cycles that you do in a night. That's going to put you into your four dreams that you have every night. It's not going to do that. And the other thing I heard as a pattern or I spotted as a pattern with the solutions you mentioned there is they're all routine. I mean, the music's routine. Your brain doesn't have to be stimulated or think very hard about it. Same with you're not going to watch a murder mystery on you know brand new episode of some type of crime thriller that you have to guess the who done it because again you don't want your brain working very hard. That seems to be the pattern with the nighttime routine. Right. Anything that doesn't tax your brain allows your brain chemistry to take over and allows your adrenal gland to get that melatonin in and to start putting you to sleep naturally. The key is naturally. Um, it, we, we seem to be fighting against sleep, and I think people just don't have a conception of how important sleep is. I didn't. I always claimed ah, I can live on five hours of sleep a night, and I have for most of my 68 years of life until about a year ago when I started studying sleep and went, no, this makes no sense. So now I go to sleep 11, 11.30 and try to sleep till 7, 7.30, um, to get a good amount of sleep and, and recognizing what it's doing positively for my brain to do that. You have to fit in all those books somewhere, Larry. <laughs> so uh, I presume that was, uh, you probably got creative at nighttime. Yeah, I actually, I'm a reader. So I, I tend to read murder mysteries at night, but the kinds of that I'm really familiar with. So I know how, I know that the style of the writer and, and so th those calm me down. And then I also, use a, a, a rock and roll mantra in my head if I wake up in the middle of the night, again, to trick my brain into sort of getting into a state of non-thinking and non-anxiety. Really, it's the anxiety that keeps you awake. The anxiety chemicals, this cortisol and adrenaline. And what I do is I hum in, into my head um, the opening bars of Welcome to the Hotel California. Seems to work, although I can tell on nights that I'm particularly, my brain is particularly active, other songs will creep in and I'll have to say, stop it in my, inside my head <laughs> and go back to, Welcome to the Hotel California. Just, I have to keep that mantra going because I, I realize that it, it sort of stops my brain from getting anxious. It stops those anxiety chemicals. Those type of exercises seem to be absolutely key. And you, you do mention them throughout all your work. I'd love to bring it back to something you mentioned. So you mentioned the prefrontal cortex, because I found this fascinating. You talked about this before, where the process of myelination takes place. And I thought this explained really, really well how with stuff like gambling, for example, or even alcohol, that we put an age restriction on it. And it's for more reasons than you're just an adult now. It's because of reasons that's going inside your brain. Right. Part of, part of what's interesting about the development of the body is when you're born, your, your neurons are essentially like live wires. Um, if you have a lamp and you have that coating, that rubber coating out around the wires, 
your neurons are like wires without the rubber coating. And throughout, throughout the beginning of your life, um, these little tiny cells called myelin, um, they're, they're really just fat. They start to surround each neuron um, to, primarily to aid transmission because if you have a live electrical wire and you send a signal, it's going to spark and not transmit from one point to the other. Same thing analogously happens to your neurons. And so this myelination process starts going. I mean, and the funniest thing I tell, I tell students is myelination is why um, you can't potty train a child until they're about two years old because the pathway from their brain to their bladder or their bowels is not myelinated until they're about two years old. Uh, and so the signal from their brain or their bladder doesn't quite get there fast enough for them to run to the bathroom. But that's kind of what happens in our brain. And interestingly enough, the last area of the brain to be myelinated is the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is really your executive controller. It's your boss. It's your problem solver. It tells you what to attend to, tells you when to be impulsive and when not to be, tells you how to make decisions, how to work on a problem. It all happens up in the prefrontal cortex, just behind your, your forehead. And the myelination process in your prefrontal cortex is not completed until you're probably at best in your mid-20s, sometimes maybe your late 20s, early 30s. So you're not working with a fully cooked brain um, and making good decisions. And particularly when we talk about teenagers and children, um, their prefrontal cortex is not myelinated hardly enough to help them make good decisions, which is why they make impulsive decisions often without thinking. So Larry, then let's take that and let's take that overlaid with the multitude of social networks that they're on. And they're starting younger and younger now. And you talk about Generation C, the connected generation being the one that we're witnessing now, the ones who have been born into a world of Facebook, etc. all these new platforms. Let's hold that as one pillar. And then the other pillar being the fact that most of these social networks have employees that they call attention engineers who are designing the products to manipulate or at least access things like dopamine and triggers that will keep people on the platforms for longer. And we're seeing this perfect storm, this recipe for disaster for the future if, if these dis brains are going to become more and more distracted because they're living within these, this world of total distraction. And with myelination not having fully taken place, it's almost like they're missing a seatbelt at the risk of a car crash. That is so true. That is so true. I think that part of what we're seeing is the ramifications of that too. In lear increase in learning disabilities, increase in, in psychological problems. Interestingly, the National Institute of Mental Health just announced that the number one psychiatric disorder in teenagers and young adults used to be depression. It's now anxiety. And that speaks yards for what's going on. Part of the job of these businesses, and when they talk about these businesses, what they're really talking about are social media sites, um, places where you communicate. And that's really important because communication is, is one thing that makes us uniquely human, is that we connect with other people and we communicate. And these companies, I mean, you can't fault their business model. Their business model is to get your eyeballs there for as long as they can. The longer your eyeballs are there, the more likely you are to click on an ad. And then they get a little bit of money here and there every time you click through. The longer you're there, the more likely you are to go back and visit it often and read their ads. 
And so bottom line is their job is to keep you there. Their job is to get your eyeballs, collapse them into their screen and keep you there. And they each do it with behavioral scientists. They have behavioral scientists working for them that tell them how to do this. And, and the most glaring one that, I, that I've heard of is Snapchat. Snapchat, by the way, is the number one site now for um, website for teens, um, at least in the States. I haven't seen any stats from anywhere else. Snapchat has this thing called streaks. So if you're sending snaps to somebody else, if you send it to them one day, and they send something back to you, you now have a streak of one day, each of you. And every day you send to that person, you get another day on your streak. Well, that's a really good behavioral way to get people to do it. And, and kids have been reporting that even when they are away someplace that they can't use their phone, for example, maybe in the mountains or someplace where there's no reception, they will give their password to Snapchat to their friends to have them snap for them so they don't break their streak. No wonder. No wonder they're connected so much and hooked. And I would argue they're either addicted or obsessed or both. Um, those are both very different biochemical processes, but it doesn't matter. Addicted, obsessed, compelled, doesn't really matter. It's keeping you there. The eye disorder, you mentioned how badly this can go because you mentioned a young girl whose dad took her phone and then she shot him with a crossbow. Yes, it's very serious. It's it's very serious, and and you do hear about this, and it it saddens me to watch in the world where parents who might be at the dinner table um, at a restaurant with their kids opt to hand their kids a device to play with um, sh instead of communicating with them. All you're doing is creating a situation where your kids think it's natural that you're always connected on a device. And it's not natural that you actually talk to other human beings face to face. I'd love to touch into this for a second, Larry, because oftentimes we project onto others and particularly onto our children what we fear most in ourselves or what we want them to avoid. And, you know, sometimes when a, when a parent was bullied as a child, the last thing they want to do is have their own child's children bullied, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I see is that many parents give out about their children being on technology a little bit too much, um, worried about them playing the PlayStation or the Xbox a little bit too much, but they're in a way sending them there because it, it works as a babysitter. But also the other fact is it gives them a chance to check up on their own social networks or work a little bit on a Saturday or a Sunday and catch up. And then it's just poisoning the well. It's actually just making the, the whole situation much, much worse. Well, it's certainly not good parental modeling, I could say that. But you're right. I mean, we used, to, we used to talk about entertaining kids by turning on the television. But television is a very passive activity. And it's, it allows you time to do other things. Whereas technology, uh, a tablet, an iPad, um, an iPhone, some sort of smartphone, um, is interactive. And that in itself connects you and keeps you interested. I always used to say that the best babysitter were video games when my kids were growing up. Um, the, the phone and the tablet are much better babysitters because they have video games and way, way, way more. Television, music, anything you can imagine. And as a parent, I can totally understand why you would want your kids to use, say, your phone 
while they're at the dinner table because they're quiet and it gives you time to do whatever you might want to do. The problem is, is like you said, is that most often what you see is the parents are on their devices just as much as the kids. And we're all guilty of it at times as well. Well, we're on the subject of PlayStation and gaming consoles. You, you talked about a lot of research, and this is going back to 2012 when you wrote Eye Disorder. You talked about, and most of it was coming out of Asia at that time, the resulting effects of people who spent a lot of time on games, for example, one-person shooters, etc. It would be great to touch on that a little bit as well and just inform our audience about that. Sure. Um, video games are kind of the classic example of, of an addictive process. Biochemically, what happens is when you play a video game, you get you are directed to do something that gets you something positive. I mean, that the games are all built on positive reinforcement. You shoot somebody, they die. You get positive reinforcement. You you chop down something, you get positive reinforcement. Every time you get positive reinforcement, you get a little squirt of a chemical called dopamine, plus other chemicals too. But dopamine's the main one. And the problem with dopamine is that initially a little bit of dopamine will make you feel happy, make you feel pleasure, but pretty soon you habituate to it, and then you need more dopamine to feel the same amount of pleasure. Um, Getting more dopamine means playing more video games, probably, or doing something similar that makes you have pleasure. And so what happens is it's a vicious cycle. You, You need more to feel more, so you play more. and Um, You're right that most of the research on this is done in Asia because they have a a much more severe problem. The percentage of video game addicts ranges, depends on the study, anywhere from a couple 3% up to 15%, depending on who you're studying. Um, Asia is the one place where in South Korea and in Japan, particularly where they have treatment centers. In the U.S., we have very few treatment centers. For video game addiction, there's there's one in Washington State. There's a couple in Upper State New York, but by and large, video game addiction is just treated as any old addiction, and it's not. It's a very different process. Yeah, and again, you give some of the solutions. For example, so let's just talk about the family, Larry, if you would, if you might, some of the solutions you give about. You talk about tech breaks, for example, both in the classroom as one of your your strategies that you employ, but also you teach many other teachers about other professors, but also then tech breaks at home. Right. One of the problems is, and and I've been watching this stuff since the mid-1980s, and first started studying computer phobia back in 1984. So it's been, I've been doing this for a long time. One of the things that I've seen in the last, I'd say, three to five years only is our inability to let go of our phone. Um, you see people getting notifications, beeps, buzzes all day long, grabbing their phone, checking it out. Um, You see people checking their phone even when they don't have a beep or a buzz. And we have gotten ourselves into this mental state where we are either getting external alerts and notifications that are distracting us or internal alerts and notifications that are distracting us. Regardless of that, we have kind of sunk into this hole where we, hold, we have our device with us 24-7. Um, mine's never far from me, by the way. I'm just as bad as anybody else at this. Um, if I leave my device in the other room, I start patting my pockets. Even if my device is in my pocket, I pat my pocket just to reassure myself. 
So I, I'm not any better than most of the teenagers. But what's happened is slowly we have built up this, this almost what I would say a Pavlovian reaction that our phone beeps or our brain beeps and tells us to check our phone and we do it without even thinking. So I developed this technique called a tech break where you start by giving somebody one minute, you set an alarm, one minute to look at anything they want on their phone, anything they want on their computer. Um, I do this a lot with students who are studying to help them focus better. So um, I always imagine that they're studying with their phone next to their computer, which is true. And then once they've had one minute, they have to close down any, any app or any website that is irrelevant for their work. And I don't mean minimize them, reduce them down onto the, the toolbar. Um, I mean delete them, close them down completely, flick off all the apps that you don't need. Set an alarm for 15 minutes, turn your phone upside down, and put it close to your face so that your brain knows that you will get to look at it in 15 minutes when that alarm rings. 15 minutes, the alarm rings, you set it for one minute, you give yourself one minute to open up your email, check it, open up Facebook, open up Snapchat, whatever it is you want. One minute turns out to be quite a bit of time. I also tell people, two minutes is fine too, whatever you do, it just make it consistent. And then one minute, 15 minutes, one minute, 15 minutes. And you'll know that you've got it when the 15-minute alarm goes off and you say to yourself, wait, 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 I need to finish just this one paragraph I'm writing, or I need to finish reading this page, or now change it to 20 minutes, and then slowly creep it up to 25 and 30 minutes. I always say with students, if you can get them to focus for 30 minutes straight, you've won. Um, Because right now, our average focus time is about three to five minutes, although some people have argued that we have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. Um, and they claim goldfish have an attention span of about eight seconds. So I didn't know goldfish had an attention span, but but they evidently do. <laughs> I'd say it's a myth. I heard that's a myth by the person uh, who invented the bowl because that's how long it takes for a fish to go around the bowl. And it was to take away the cruelty aspect of the fish going around a small goldfish bowl over and over again. Well, and I can still verify eight seconds because one of the bars near near my house used to have goldfish races on Tuesday night. And those goldfish could concentrate on racing, but they'd, they'd go down the tube for about five, six, ten seconds, and then they'd turn around backwards and go the other way. So they probably had a short attention span. <laughs> Larry, do you know, there's a thing you mentioned there, which is, um, I, I think it's important to say, you're not, you're not a technophobe, or you're not a techno, you're not opposed to technology. You're, in fact, you're a really early adopter. And I think this is important because people may get confused with that and go, you're just anti-technology. You're not at all. No, I, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you with my phone, my iPad, my MacBook, my three other, two other screens. Um, I've got every kind of device you can imagine, and I use technology in everything I do. I'm a tech lover. I, I got hooked on technology as a young child and never gave up. Um, in fact, even I do some artwork, and it involves te- old technology pieces um, that I've kept for decades. So no, I'm I'm a, I'm a tech devotee, and and I'm my worst subject. I mean, I, I see this in me, I see this in 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 other people around me, and my my plan is to help people figure out ways to balance it. It's, yeah, it's it, it's an issue of balance. You get a lot out of technology. There's there's a lot there, and I'm actually going to Toronto this week to speak to um, some middle school and high school kids there and parents. And this is one of the things I tell them is, is that technology is really valuable. It does a lot of amazing things that we can't do without it. Um, but 
it has downsides. And we have to be aware of the downsides because the downsides make us a little bit too obsessive, I think, at times. Steve Jobs often said this, that this is one of his drives was to empower the world to be more creative. Hence why Apple, you know, enabled so many creative artists, etc., to create. But you talk about the different generations now and the fact that there's more and more generations than there ever has before. And that oftentimes people are critical and kind of going, oh yeah, but the younger generation, which you call Generation C, are the connected generation, are less creative. But in fact, you see it slightly differently. Right. I think that the tools that we have now for creativity are um, abundant. And the ones who are able to use them are the younger kids. Um, they are, in fact, spending a lot more time being creative than, than older people and even young adults because they're the ones that have embraced all these, these interesting tools. I mean, you just have to look at the users of Snapchat as a good example. One of the, the things about Snapchat is it has filters that allow you to put bunny ears on people and dog noses and all sorts of things and, and play with your pictures and, and modify them and, and do all sorts of fancy stuff. And the ones that you see doing this are young people. Um, they're the ones that are into Snapchat, that are using it a lot. And they're also the ones that are, that are the, the early adopters of any creative technology. They love being creative. They love creating content. They love sharing content. What, you, what you're seeing is, is that a generation that's embracing this idea of creativity, the problem is, and this is the, the, the negative side, the problem is, is that their distraction and their distractibility makes it more difficult for them to be creative because creativity in your brain looks different than distraction. Creativity in your brain looks like something called the default mode network that is four separate areas of your brain that are activated simultaneously that connect thoughts disparately. So the thought you had yesterday with a thought you might have had a month ago pulls those together and comes up with something novel and interesting but if we're constantly being distracted, the default mode network doesn't engage. And so it's, it's a fine balance between allowing yourself to be bored, essentially, and to have your default mode network click in or constantly be connected and switching at the cost of being creative. And we see this a lot, unfortunately, that, that they could even be more creative um, if they allowed themselves time to not be constantly distracted and constantly interrupted. Let's throw in the fact that they've been raised in a dopamine-rich world where they're getting short-term gratification and instant rewards. And then often, you know, the world is more on the Maslow hierarchy of needs. We're more up the scale than we've ever been before, you know, in most parts of the world, most, you know, certainly the Western world. And oftentimes, again, going back to that deflection of parents or that that desire to go, oh, well, I couldn't have any of the toys I wanted when I was a kid, so I'm going to give them to little Johnny here. And by doing that, you're actually feeding the beast a little bit because little Johnny's not earning it, not understanding what delayed gratification is, and therefore we're actually depriving them of skills for the future. Right, and, and it's interesting you brought up delay of gratification because uh, that was a topic that was studied way back in the 60s in the marshmallow, the famous marshmallow study where they, they brought in little kids, four- and five-year-old kids, into a lab, showed them a marshmallow on a plate, and, and said, I'm going to go out. The researcher said, I'm going to go outside. I'll be back in a few minutes. If you don't eat that marshmallow, I'll give you a second one, and you can eat them both. And then what happens is you watch the kids, and about a third of them in those studies were able to delay gratification 
And 50 years later, when they go back and study those same kids, they find that they're more successful in life, that they um, have a lower body mass index, so they're not obese necessarily. Um, in fact, they even scanned some brains, some of their brains and found that their prefrontal cortex works better. So somebody just did a study that they called the media marshmallow test. And the media marshmallow test is interesting because what it basically does is it says, here's a situation. I'm going to leave you alone and here's your phone. Either you can use your phone or you can resist your phone or I'm going to put your phone in another room. It's the resisting their phone that's exactly like the marshmallow test. The people that resist their phone um, are able to keep themselves calm for about three minutes. They put a little device on them that measures their skin conductivity. And for about three minutes, they're able to stay in an, a non-aroused state, after which they get really aroused. And we've shown this, a similar result on national television in the States multiple times, where we will put somebody in a situation where we will we will monitor their their arousal level. It's called galvanic skin response or electrodermal activity, and then we will text them, but not let them access their texts, not let them look at their phone, not let them access their texts. And every time we text them, their galvanic skin response spikes. And this has been shown every single person we've done it. And interestingly enough, this is a stu another study by Nancy Cheever, who did the other study that I discussed. And um, she she had a reporter from um, Good Morning America come in and brought two teenage girls with him. And the, he did the study. And of course, every time he got a text that he couldn't look at, his GSR spiked. But when the two teenage girls did it, their GSR spiked much higher than, than the reporter. And so they're even more susceptible to this, this creeping anxiety. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. I mean, it's a perfect storm. And I can see why it's your focus at the moment and that you're really working hard to educate the world on being less distracted. You know, I feel humanity's in a way dumbing down and artificial intelligence getting better and better and getting clever and clever. And you're kind of seeing this storm where the machines will take over a lot of thinking roles because we just won't be able to keep our attention long enough to think. Right. It's interesting that what the ramifications are of a shorter attention span. I mean, you just hit on one very clearly, but I, I also worry about short attention spans and relationships. Um, most people, when they watch television, it should be a communal activity. I watch with my wife. We should be talking about what's going on in the television. If we're watching the news or if we're watching a comedy show, is, is this funny? Is this not funny? What typically is happening is we both have second screens, either a phone or a tablet. So we're, we're now partialing out our attention, part of our attention toward our screen in front of us, part of our attention toward the TV away from us. And that doesn't leave any attentional resources to have communication. Um, one of the things, again, I'm trying to heal myself here. One of the things that I've done is the hour before I go to sleep, when I take my phone out of the room, I also stop second screening with any device to see if how it feels. And I and it feels odd to just be focusing on one thing at a time. And I think that's kind of what happened to us over time is that it's gotten odd to think about focusing on anything. We see this everywhere. I mean, I, I, I'm an inveterate people watcher. I see people standing in line, not being able to focus. I see people in a movie theater, um, halfway through the movie, they can't stand it anymore, so they have to look at their phone. I see people in church looking at stirrup tissues or looking at their phone. 
Um, it's, it's become an epidemic. And I really do believe that it's not too late to change things, to be able to still enjoy the technology and not give it up, because I don't think giving it up is, is going to help anybody, um, but certainly to moderate its use and give yourself a little bit better chance of having an attention span. Absolutely. And as, as you say, all your work is geared towards making us focus less on our hardware and more on our humanware. And, you know, I highly recommend all your work. I could talk to you again, Larry, and I, and I hope to do so in the future because we haven't even gone through the, the disorders that come from technology. And we might do that again at a different time and combine it with some of your other work because there's a multitude of work there. And where can people find out more about you, Larry? I, I'll link to the links, et cetera, but it'd be great to share with that with people right now. Well, one of the things that, that I do that I like people to look at is I write a blog for, an uh, infrequent blog, but a blog for Psychology Today, which is a, a longstanding magazine, newspaper kind of thing. And you can get there by going to, to my website, which is drlarryrosen.com, just D-R, or do, short for drlarryrosen.com. And then there's a link to to the posts that I do on Psych Today. I try to summarize the issues that are troubling me at the time. So, for example, I, I just wrote one about those little red numbers that show up as alerts and notifications and what you can do to stop yourself from seeing those little red numbers and going, oh, I have to tap that icon on my phone because I have to see what's behind those little red numbers. There's a five there. What five things have I missed? So. I, mean, I talk about suggestions for how to eliminate those those kind of knee-jerk reactions, those Pavlovian reaction feelings. By the way, one really simple one is to turn off all the notifications. Um, most people are, are not ready to do that yet because they like them, but you can turn off all the notifications. And if that doesn't work, I always tell people, take all of your icons that have, that have notifications and put them on the last page of your main screen and hide them inside of a, of a folder so that you actually have to physically think to go look for them. I think that's part of, we have to learn to engage our brain. And when we start looking, going, where is that Facebook app that I stuck back? Oh yeah, it's on the last page. By the time you scroll to the last page and tapped on there, maybe you'll be a little less eager to jump in the next time. Brilliant, Larry. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you for your time. Dr. Larry D. Rosen, author of Techno Stress, <laughs> Me, My Space and I, Rewired Eye Disorder, The Wiley Handbook of Psychology, Technology, and Society, and most recently, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on your show.